Welcome to the Monster Podcast. This is Justin. Hey everyone, it's Jay. And today it's my honor and pleasure to welcome award-winning newsman, sports broadcaster, fellow animal lover, and consummate card collector and baseball historian Keith Olbermann to the show. Hello, with Keith. My, with, uh, with my audience here, my, uh, my dogs are already making noise. They're all <laughs> welcome. They're all welcome. And just for anyone who doesn't know, and I'm sure we'll get into this in depth, uh, if in case you just know him from television, Keith has deep roots in the hobby, uh, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he bought his first T206 card 50 years ago when he was 11 at an antique shop for 35 cents. Is that right, Keith? Uh, the second, like the first large grouping I ever got was, uh, was 35 cents each from a guy named Ed Valeber in New Jersey. And they were, some of them were beaten up. Most of my first ones, first 200 or so came from Bruce Yeko at Wholesale Cards and he sold them for 55 cents a piece out of his catalog. And I, I think I ordered four. I got Beckley, uh, Jake Beckley, Killian, you couldn't select who you wanted. He just sent you whatever was on the top of the pile. But at, at, what was nice about Bruce was he would, if you gave him a list of the ones you already had, he would then send you, try not to duplicate what you already had. And uh, they were 55 cents a piece. And I was 11 years old. And I went to my dad and said, look at these. These are worth more than 55 cents a piece. Can you loan me $220? And my father if I had said to my father, you know, actually I am an alien from the planet Neptune, he could not have been more surprised. He was like, what are you, $220? That's probably a lot of money, right? In 1970. Huge amount of money. 1970, you could get a car easily for 200, a used car that would work for a couple of years for $220. You right. can get two of them for $220. And I was an 11 year old kid. I wanted $220. I, he said, what are you, what are you thinking about? I said, well, what I was thinking of was just getting 400 of these. And, you know, I'm sure some of them would be ones I'd need, which I'd put into my collection and slowly I'd pay our little group back. But the rest of them, we just put them in a uh, safe deposit box because they've got to be. I said, they must, they'll be worth three or four dollars each someday. And he looked at me like I was insane. So that's my, that's the start of my T206 collecting. Uh, not only did I love them and think they were the greatest things I had ever seen in, in baseball, but uh, I, I realized the investment potential fairly early on. That's awesome. 11 year old you was right on because those, uh, those, those did all right, didn't they? Yeah. I, well, I only reminded my father of that uh, monthly until he died 10 years ago. So uh, he, he was, yes, no, he, he, well, there was a lot of that in the, in the late seventies, the, the infamous Bill Mastro, who was the uh, auctioneer who wound up in prison because he was bidding up his own uh, uh, material. Um, he bought a Wagner for, I think, $11,000, a really nice condition card. I'd say 1977, 78, something like that. And I remember Mike Aronstein, who was a friend of mine since I was about 12 years old and always treated me like just another collector. And then he got me into uh, writing the backs of cards and photographing players for cards. It, he, he introduced me to, to the business and to the hobby. And I edited a magazine for him when I was 16 years old. Mike looked at this story and we were talking about it one day at a card show in New York, table next to each other. And he said, uh, he said you know, uh, apparently 
Mastro's parents and relatives got together and had an intervention and they were ready to put him in psychiatric facility because he spent $11,000 on Wagner. And uh, Mike says, you met him. He is, he is kind of crazy. But in this case, it should be the parents who are going to the institution. He said, that card will be worth $100,000, maybe before you get out of college, but certainly before you were 25 years old. He said, I expect to live to see it be worth a million dollars. And he's alive and well in Taos, New Mexico, and it's worth more than a million dollars. And that's, you know, there's a, there was a lot of disbelief even inside the, the hobby that the, that the T206s were as, uh, as marvelous as, as they've turned out to be and that they would remain a center of the hobby indefinitely was, was really was like, no, these are nice, but, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't sleep on 1970 tops, you know, so. That's awesome. I, um, in, in doing some research today, looking, looking around on, on some of the things that you had written, I came across a November, 1974 edition of sports collector news, where mm-hmm. you are the whiz kid. You're 17 yeah. and you had, Let's see, you had over 400 cards towards the set, 468 cards. So yep. take, us, take us through the, the rest of your set build. Well, um, there was always one card I found difficult to find for some reason. Uh, but I got, the, I got the McGee, I think, in the McGee error. And yeah, the McGee error, I think I was just out of college when I got that, maybe 1980 or 81. And uh, certainly... I had completed the, the common major leaguers and the Southern leaguers and all the minor leaguers by then. And I was down to the rare Demet and the rare O'Hara, both of which I think I got when I was 25, 1984, from Lou Lipset, uh, the dealer from uh, uh, probably still fairly well-known inside the hobby of dealer yeah, of old, old yeah. And the, the guy who wrote the old Judge series and the, and the old Judge books on the, on the early, uh, early sets. Uh, a great researcher and historian of the, of the, of the business and the hobby. And then I got, I remember to this day, the day I got a plank, I got a plank and traded a Cracker Jack Ty Cobb and a set of 1940 play ball, which did not look like a good deal for quite a while. That would have been around Christmas of 1985. And I finally got a Wagner and went into it kind of big. I bought two Wagners at once in 2009 and that was the completion of the set and then i bought a third one in an auction and then i got the uh, the proof the proof strip the wagner proof strip probably about a year after that i got into the t206 proofs uh in let's say the first one i got was was about 1985 that would have been the schulte card the cubs outfielder where the the shirt reads Chicago when the issued card reads Cubs. And I started to try to get as many of those proofs as I could because I was there the day they walked into the hobby. Another one of these, you know, things that didn't, I mean, it seemed like a big deal when I was 14 that these things were found, but now they're like, it's like, yes, I was there when King Arthur pulled that sword out of the stone in the water. It's, it has that kind of quality to it. And it just, it's just really kind of amazing. But, but when I was, yeah. You're talking about that lot of 400, 400 uh, uh, proofs that, that walked in. Yeah, I think that might have been a little high. I don't think it was 400, but I, I would say what I could see, and I could see the old guy coming in 
with this with this bag, and I, I guess he had a tin of cards, or a, a large tin, and then a small tin of cards. And he was the son of a of a, one of the printers. Somebody worked at the print place that made T two O six and T three, and he had and he had since childhood uh, all of these T two O six proofs. And there were certainly there was a hundred of them, and there certainly were fifty T threes. And the T3s, for some reason, were in almost pristine condition. The T206s were pretty good, occasional stubbed corner here and there, hand cut all of them. And the veteran collectors of that day, Mike Ehrenstein, Irv Lerner, uh, I'm trying to think who else, some of the real veteran guys, descended on this guy like uh, white blood cells on one of the characters in the movie Magnificent Voyage or whatever it was called, where they shrink these doctors, <laughs> put them in the president's brain and a little, like a, like a submarine, a tiny submarine. And, and one day all of the, all of the white blood cells decide that they're a foreign body and they go and suffocate everybody in the, in this little sub. That's what they, that's what this looked like. Cause once this was apparent, I mean, I saw, I saw this once a guy walked in with an uncut sheet of Ramley's, another great tobacco set, the gold ornate leaf bordered cards. And they did T204, the same thing. Those are great. Yeah, 204, about a year later, the same thing. You could see the you see the lights of this armory. It was a union hall, basement of a union hall in downtown Manhattan. And the lights shining off these cards in both instances. And then, then you couldn't see anything. Suddenly there was a group of 30 guys there with fistfuls of cash. And I don't know what they, I think... The veteran guys like Lerner and and Aaronstein and even Robbie Lipson, who was my friend then and now, who was way more advanced than I was in terms of the finance of the business, made a deal on how to how to separate these among everybody. And I was I I was an outsider. I didn't get there fast enough. I did not. I mean, I might have gotten to this scrum in about a minute, by which time the piranha had picked this poor guy's bones clean. And I, for the time, I think he got a good price. I mean, I think he probably walked out of there with a thousand or two thousand dollars for his trouble, which is what you were, what people were trying to do. Uh, you know, that's when a, the high numbers of 1952 tops a full set might cost you seven hundred and fifty dollars. And if you got two thousand dollars for selling old baseball cards, that was pretty good. But it's like twenty percent of a Wagner. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And Mike Aronstein was nice enough to save, like he goes, well, you can take one of the teeth the uh, T3 proofs. And that cost me, he said, $25 for that. That's, that's what I just paid for it. And that was nice. I said, none of the T3-06s. He went, no. And in there were the <laughs> Colin and the Schulte and the Matthewsons and really all of them that you see periodically appearing in, uh, in auctions with the little, uh, with the little star uh, crosses on the sides and on the bottoms and sometimes with names and sometimes without names and others with minor variations that, there are stripes on some caps and stripes on some others. And when I realized what had happened, um, this would have been late on the last day of these three-day shows. It was a Sunday. So when I realized what I had seen and not gotten a hold of, I made a vow to get as many of these as I could. And I wound up with virtually all the T3, uh, the T206 proofs that were sold that day. And it was like, you know, the, the uh, Wyatt Earp gang, um, chasing down the Stantons or whatever their name, <laughs> uh, it, you know, after the gunfight at the OK Corral, it's like, I'll get them eventually. And I, I got them eventually. So 
that that was a that was but that was an amazing thing to watch and i always loved uh lifson was over here before the pandemic started and we were talking about this because he he wasn't a t206 collector so he didn't realize he just saw it was the eddie collins card he didn't realize it was unissued he just thought it was a it was a proof card of the eddie collins card he didn't realize right it right right and so he turned it around and sold it for twenty dollars he probably paid ten dollars for it he said he was very happy to to make a ten dollar profit on it. Absolutely, so, that's yeah, awesome. So I always kid him about that. So I'm gonna toss. I'm gonna toss in for the for the listeners one of these proofs, a Christy Mathewson white cap with the little hash mark proofs that that Keith is talking about. Sold in Heritage last weekend or the weekend before for about eighty four thousand dollars. So these are um, really really cool and in, in demand now in the marketplace for sure. And yeah. We're the, the genesis of them and the collins in particular was of interest because it was a different it's eddie collins the hall of fame second baseman of the philadelphia a's with a bat on his shoulder so the pose is ugly as sin and it's uh, not a good looking pose it has a tent an, in the background though which, yeah, is, which it, is somewhat redeeming but it was really a, it just looked like they went to the commercial artist afterwards and went this is the best you could do and clearly they <laughs> placed it with a very nice looking portrait of him and never made that card. So even among the proofs, the Collins was, was a little bit different because it represented a, uh, a card that was essentially never produced in any form, um, which is the same category that the Southern league proofs fell into. And I, there are eight cards of minor leaguers in this, what would be the equivalent of single A and double A baseball. Uh, South Atlantic League, Virginia Association, outfits like that. And they made, they made 20-odd cards of these, these lower minor leaguers in 1909 and 1910 and evidently had a second series planned, and they never made them. And out of nowhere, I had never heard of them, and I, had, in retro, I asked lots of people who know about the, collecting this set and generally collecting weird stuff and, and unique stuff, and they didn't know anything about it either. These cards showed up in an auction in 1999 or 2000. And they, and were, was, they were in a lot, right? All eight of them together? They were, I, I think they were, yeah, they couldn't have been sold separately. I don't think so. I think, I think it was one lot. But maybe they were separate. I'm not sure which, but they were all in the same auction together. And I had, you know, at this point, I had everything that I wanted to get other than the Wagner and the Collins proof. And I was like, oh no, I, these are not going anywhere else other than into my album. And so I got them, but they were, they were clearly played with. They had rounded edges. Whoever got these cards must've been a kid, decided he was going to try to, they had no names on them. And we're still not certain about the identities of a couple of the eight guys. Uh, but the kid who had them like drew, drew in with what is clearly an old fashioned uh, ink pen an inkwell kind of ink pen drew in the name like Doherty Milwaukee on one of them for whatever reason. And it's not Doherty Milwaukee, but these are eight cards and they're, they're otherwise in great shape other than they've been played with and used and enjoyed. And they, it's like, is it, is it just those eight? Were there more? What happened to the other ones? So that's what I, that's what I wanted to ask you next. So you've obviously researched this. Have you heard of any others? No, no clue. No, no, no indication. Years and years ago, there was a pamphlet that put out that was uh, by one of the uh, great collectors of the seventies. I want to say it was wasn't Bill Himmelman, it was somebody Bill, like Bill Heitman. 
Bill Heitman. Yes, that's who it is. I always got those two guys confused. Bill Heitman put out this little book called The Monster. Um, and it was, it, in it was a just a throwaway line that said that there were hundreds of unissued proofs. And everybody was like, oh, that's ridiculous. There aren't hundreds of them. Because the, the way he phrased it, it sounded like there were hundreds of Eddie Collins cards. That there were, you know, reams and reams of players and images that were never issued. And that was not the case. But it turns out that there are, you know, there are nine cards uh, that are existing in proof form uh, that do not exist in any actual issued form in T206. So it's not like it's, it's not tough enough that you have a McGee and a Wagner and a Demet and a O'Hara and a Doyle card and a Tinker card and a, you know, a whole panoply of, of, of scarce cards and very highly priced cards of the great superstars of the early 20th century. But there's also nine unique unissued cards just to make it more fun for the collector at home. I think that sounds fun. Yeah, if you kind no. of glossed over a piece that's in your collection that is uh, kind of a missing link here, the the strip with the with the Wagner on it that has oh, that some fascinating history. Uh, yes. Oh, that little thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about how you ended up with well, that and where it yeah, fits into the puzzle here. You can tell the story if you want to about what that supposedly is. That's been, I'll, then I'll explain what I know about it and don't know about it. Well, I'll... I mean, what the limited knowledge I have of it was that it was found in Honus Wagner's house in the attic. And the folklore is that this is potentially the strip they sent him to approve and that may or may not have tipped him off to the fact that he was going to be included in the set and it was folded up and kept in his pocket or something. And that's what I know about it. All right. Uh, that's, that's largely the story, but I have to correct one detail that is vitally important. Please. It's Hannes. Hannes, yes. You know, I have a note here to pronounce it properly. <laughs> Be insane, but people make it rhyme with bonus. It's, it's the German, he was of German extraction. His name was John Peter Wagner. He was called Johannes, as in the German equivalent of John. So he was Johannes, 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 Hannes, Hannes. He was Hannes Wagner. So that's, everybody, people tend to look at it and go, well, it can't just be Hannes, that would be two ends, right? No, nope, that's it was one on. Okay, so it's Hannes Wagner, and I use I've done it myself, so I'm not being critical. I'm just saying. No, no, I stand corrected. I appreciate it. Let's set a floor here. Yeah, <laughs> if you at home are considering spending a couple of million dollars to get a Hannes Wagner T206 card, that's what they're <laughs> all going to cost now. If you're thinking about it and you're going, I'm going to do this because his name rhymes with bonus. Move on. <laughs> go somewhere home. else that it's you got the, somebody else yeah find somebody named lonus or jonas because <laughs> that's not who this is it's honest mm. all right so now i until this thing popped up and i remember alan rosen had it for sale in the mid 80s and I, I don't know of it before then i'd never heard of it beforehand before that time but then the story came up that it was found in hannes wagner's jacket pocket in his home and I mean, it's plausible. Uh, I don't know that there's any evidence that it's true. Uh, I know that Hannes Wagner's widow lived long enough that she threw out the first pitch at the opening day at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh in 1970. 
So if you're looking for a timeline of things, Card comes out in 1909. Hannes died in 1953. Uh, Hannes's widow is still there to throw out the first pitch, uh, like April 10th, 1970. I got my first T206 card May 10th, 1970. So that's your timeline of things. So it's possible that it was that he had some connection to it. And that I guess adds to the story and to the to the to the you know uh, G whiz quality to it. But it's he if he never saw the thing or heard about it in his life, it's still an epic little piece of memorabilia because it is a five card strip. It is a uh, horizontal. Since we know T206 cards were produced in vertical strips of the same player repeating again and again. So you had, you know, looking on however they made them. We've never seen an uncut full. This is the closest thing to an uncut sheet of T206 that exists. It's five cards left to right. And on it are, uh, besides Wagner, is Cy Young. All the cards are significantly different from the issued cards. And it's clearly a prototype more than it is a proof. The borders are not white. They're kind of a cream color, pretty strong mix between cream and beige. Uh, the card of Frank Bowerman, who is on there, has a different color to the uniform. The Cy Young is the Cy Young portrait, which in the issued card, he's got a gray uniform on. And the, in the strip, he is in a white uniform with Cleveland written on it. And it is useful for being certain when they went into production with T206, because if one assumes that this was made and then they went, I don't like those borders, make them just white. This has to have been made early in 1909, say February or March, because Cy Young was traded from the Boston Red Sox to Cleveland, back to Cleveland early in 1909. So you've got a frame of reference. And this thing turned up and it's heavily creased. So it looks like it might've been in somebody's jacket pocket. Uh, and it went, from dealer to dealer. And then one day I just said, why don't I have this in my collection? And I, I bought it and there it sits. And I would suspect with the recent jump in the value of the issued Wagner cards, which are plentiful in comparison to this one known proof on his Wagner, um, I suspect it's worth a great deal of money now. And, uh, you know, maybe it gets its own bank vault in the near future. So, well, I I don't know if Jay had any questions about the, the strip, but I think that brings us to an interesting conversation that kind of started on Twitter mm-hmm. about the Wagner as a chase card. And that's, that's your theory. Yeah, I don't, it's not a fully formed theory, and I, but I know this, that from the, from the first time I ever heard the, oh, he didn't like smoking and didn't want to be associated with cigarette smoking. Um, it just didn't ring true because the one I had an uncle who was, it was actually my mother's uncle who was a great baseball and, and hockey fan in particular, who, who was a very vibrant guy and, and, and was, I'm going to guess he was born about 1910 and uncle Willie knew people. I mean, he met Babe Ruth and, and in fact, brought my mother to a game at Yankee Stadium in 1934, and she met Babe Ruth. And on her first day at, a, at Yankee Stadium, she met Babe Ruth, and Babe yeah. Ruth gave her a baseball. That's awesome. And that was a good start. And then, like, one of her last days at Yankee Stadium, she got hit by Chuck Knobloch's throw, which bounced off the dugout, and she you know, got hit in the face with it. So it was a nice bookend kind of thing for mom's baseball fandom. 
But but Uncle Willie said, you know, when we were looking at these cards and he remembered some of the players, they were a little bit before his time. He was he was like, you know, well, why is there no what was the story with the Wagner that you told me about? And I told him the story. He goes, I doubt it. I said, why is that? He said, well, he was a heavy smoker and he chewed tobacco. And in addition to that, whereas he might not have wanted his name associated with, with the product, uh, Wagner was also known to be really, really sharp with a dollar. And it's more likely than anything else that he just said, uh, you guys got to give me some money for my picture. And I, that was where I started with. Now, the, 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 most of the story of the Wagner card that we know Main lines back to one newspaper account, which is I, Sporting News, not Sporting Life, but Sporting News in 1912, where somebody is glowing about what a wonderful guy he is. There was this day when a sports writer wrote him a letter asking him for permission to use Wagner's photo in this new set of baseball cards, which clearly are T206. And Wagner uh, sent him a check for, for some large figure of $125, $200, something like that because the, the, the writer would have been rewarded if Wagner had approved the use of his image in this card set. And he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to be associated with tobacco. And he also didn't want his friend, the sports writer, not to make his money. And that's it. That's the whole evidence that Wagner turned down approval of this card and, and created this situation in which it was issued and then withdrawn somehow. That's the, the tangible evidence that it has anything to do with the idea that it was about smoking. And sadly, because it's 1912 rather than 1909, it doesn't give you any kind of understanding of the timeline of the, of the cards. And gradually, as little dribs and drabs came out over the years and reminiscences and stories from old collectors that, you know, one John Wagner, the collector, writing to Buck Barker in 1939 and the letter doesn't come to anybody's attention until Buck Barker dies in the eighties, you know, talking about the origin stories and his conversation that he had with Honest Wagner about this card, which he did not nail him down on this subject, which is maddening. But, you know, <laughs> the more you get to hear about it, it's like, well, most of the stuff we know is legend. Then came one piece of evidence, the, or two, actually, I have it in the, in my collection. I have a letter from a baseball writer named uh, named uh, Bozeman Bolger, who was with, with one of the New York newspapers. And it's a hand a handwritten envelope and a typewritten note to Neil Ball, shortstop of the New York Yankees. It's dated January 9th, 1909, and it's postmarked, the envelope still exists, February 19th, 1909. And it is a letter in which Bolger asks Ball for permission to use his photograph or his image in a bunch of baseball picture cards that one of the cigarette companies is getting up for the spring. And it's sort of offhand and you know, regards to the family and can't wait to see you during the spring training and all the rest of that stuff. And it's essentially asking these players and quite clearly what's not in there is any reference to money. money. So it's like, okay, we have that piece of evidence as to when they started to think, say, we make these baseball cards and the players get uh, wind of this, they may want money. We don't want to give them money. The whole point is to not give anybody money. Oh. And since the, the law of publicity of your right to your own image had not been established until some court decisions in like the 1909, 1910 era, 
this was being adjudicated at the time that these letters were being written and T206 was being printed. And nobody knew for sure, I guess, what the law really said. So they were protecting themselves, presumably. And, and the story was that all the ballplayers got letters that were written on behalf of the tobacco company without using their name and was, uh, were, were, were written on. This, this letter to Neil Ball is written on New York Yankees or New York American League stationary with a letterhead and everything. And why they did this, I don't, it may be something as obscure as the, as the writers knew the addresses of the players. I mean, it may be something that stupid. But one assumes that Hannes Wagner got this letter based on the 1912 story in the sporting news and based on the ball letter. And, you know, that's when he wrote his friend sometime in February, 1909 saying, no, but here's a check for your trouble. So you don't get, so you don't lose out. So the question then becomes, why was a Wagner card made and distributed if he said no in February or March of 1909, why is there a Wagner card included in the first series of T206, the 150 series that came out sometime around the start of the 1909 Major League season? And just to complicate this even more was the discovery, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, of the Charlotte Observer article. The Charlotte Observer article is a piece that was written early in August of 1909 in the newspaper that still exists. Uh, and it describes the mania among kids that has overtaken the city of Charlotte in the late spring and early summer of 1909, where kids are pestering adults at tobacco stores and uh, newspaper places in hotels asking for their picture cards. And some of the older kids are buying cigarettes to get their picture cards of the baseball players and then selling the cigarettes at like half price, which the now the vendors of cigarettes are all pissed off about this. And the most important part of this, thank goodness, whoever wrote this up notes that the, that the two cards that all the kids want are Hannes Wagner and Ty Cobb. And until... The week, a week or two earlier, none of either had shown up. And uh, finally, a trickle of cobs is reported to have shown up in the, in the packs of the cigarette cards that were available in Charlotte, North Carolina, which would have been along Tobacco Road, would have been an origin point for these, these cards in late July in 1809. But there are no Wagners. So when did the Wagner come out? As you noted in your tweets uh, a, a little while ago, there are then ads that come out after this for T206 that show the Wagner card, or at least the representation of it. Yeah, in September. In September. And the story had always been, before these things were nailed down and this timeline was established, that the thing that tipped Wagner off and got him to insist to them that he did not give his approval, the original story was that he said no when he saw this ad in the Sporting Life, which was a publication that within baseball was read by everybody as the Sporting News was read by everybody. And there's no doubt somebody on the Pirates would have seen it if Honest did not see it himself. And there's no doubt somebody would have said, hey, so you're in the picture cards with the rest of us. And there's something wrong here. He said no in February or March. Maybe they'd printed it up and and 
and maybe they released it, but why, why is the card not known to have been in the packs in Charlotte, North Carolina in late July? Why is this a missing card that all the, all the, the kids are, are asking about? Why is it only advertised in September? When was the card issued and when was it pulled? Because the other legend that has gone from the collectors at the time is that the company, the American Tobacco Company, had to send agents into the field to reclaim the cards from kids, uh, offering them stacks of hundreds of, of other cards if they'd give up their Wagners because Wagner had somehow threatened to sue. So there's this scenario, I guess, that makes sense that the Wagner card was, you know, somebody in a great bureaucracy was probably just as dumb in 1909 as they are in the present day of 2021. But, but this was a big, I mean, this was the company that, that's, that basically sold every cigarette in a time when everybody over the age of 14 smoked. This is not some fly-by-night, you know, part of ancient you know, medieval commerce. These people were as, as ruthless and sharp as any television company that runs today or, you know, or, you know, these would have been the equivalents of, these guys would have been the equivalents of Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and all those guys. And they, they planned they, and they planned a very sophisticated promotion in the cards because the cards right. are well printed and well designed and well and thought out. Are, it, it's not a fly by night operation. There are millions of them. And sudden, and the the cob the the key to it to me is the cob. I'm there are no gonna cobs. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the paragraph. So I have the Charlotte News article actually saved yeah. in my computer. I'm gonna read this paragraph that you're referring to because it's it's exactly as you say. But I'm gonna read it for the listeners. Most especially are the likenesses of Ty Cobb and Hans Wagner desired. And until a week ago, only a few pictures of Cobb had been found. Two of these being in the possession of the Buford Hotel cigar stand. Last Thursday, in a new shipment of cigarettes received at the Wilson Drugstore on East Trade Street, 13 pictures of Ty Cobb were found in the first installment opened. The boys of the street went wild. Securing money from every available source, they began purchasing from the W.L. Hand Drugstore. Before night over, 3,000 cigarettes had been sold by one firm, and on the streets, five-cent packages of cigarettes were being sold for as little as a cent apiece. It's quite clear. The Very unholy clear. hell that broke out on the streets of Charlotte, North Carolina, sometime in the very late days of July 1909 or possibly August 1st or August 2nd of 1909, the chaos that ensued once somebody said, there are Thai cobs. It must have been Beanie Babies times, uh, times Pokemon cards Pokemon cards times. <laughs> times your visit to the local neighborhood target in the last couple of months <laughs> you can see hordes <laughs> of kids descending on these uh, that many cigarettes in one day is an amazing number then let alone obviously now but it, it just it suddenly reminds me of what what it looked like when the guy walked in with the proofs it was just like you know there's nothing left. The, the guy who used we, the guy who ran this tobacco stand was a lovely guy. There's nothing left of him but his bones now that the kids have <laughs> had. But but again, there's. I'm not saying that 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 somebody said, okay, you know how we can really sell these? Let's make sure there aren't any Ty Cobbs or Hannes Wagners until people are really maybe they're just getting sick of these, and then we will produce them. And then oh, ruthless, scarce, and they're. And you go, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's ruthless. And it's, it, it seems brilliant. 
it seems brilliant, but a really premature. Like that's a that's a tops upper deck clear <laughs> move. Um, and I know this, so I say this with love, having worked with tops for twenty years on things. But that's the kind of thing that might happen there in a meeting in which nobody writes anything down. So uh, my my thought was, you know, it's like, well, is that really would that really have happened in nineteen oh nine? Okay, here's the deal. The 1933 Nap Lajoie Big League Gum Card, which was 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 produced at government insistence, because in 1933 they did not make a number 106 in this, you know, the, the Gaudi set of 1933, the big league cards. This was probably the next big landmark baseball card set after T206. Is that set in? And they deliberately left a number unissued and they issued these numbers as they call it skip numbering, where you have, you know, your, your first series is number one through 12 and then number 182 and then number 212. And it's designed to screw with kids who keep buying because they don't know how many are available. Well, they never issued a 106 and the Federal Trade Commission came in, the equivalent of the Federal Trade Commission, and basically threatened to shut the company down if they did not offer for free a number 106 to anybody who wrote in. And that is the famous send away though. Yeah. Well, you, you, they didn't put in like a coupon or something. They didn't make, they didn't have to advertise and offer it, but every letter that they got had to be responded to with one of these Lajway cards, or they were going to really, the company was going to be fined out of existence. And clearly there were enough letters that we have hundreds of Lajway cards available to us. That's 1933. So somebody had the idea of, of a chase card that didn't exist in 1933. It's not beyond reason to think that somebody said in 1909, maybe because Wagner turned them down and they'd already printed these. What if a couple of these sneaked out somehow? You know, and, and it could have been a bureaucratic error. It was enough. There were enough cards being made. Maybe there was a problem. Um, I just saw it in real time in what was it, 2006 with Tops. And they made a card of the then rookie Alex Gordon of the Royals, who was not eligible to be in their set because he had not yet played a major league game. And whether they were clear on that or they weren't, they pulled the card and the card didn't make it out, except little cut up pieces of the cards made it out in packs. And some early packs that were sent to, uh, army bases around the world have the Alex Gordon card in it. And it was, that card was, you know, some people were paying, including me upwards of $2,000 each for those cards. And then suddenly I got a call from somebody who said, would you like 500 of them? I have a stack of 500 of them. Um, and I'm not saying that's exactly what happened with Wagner, but it certainly is plausible. And that's one of the reasons that, and the idea of turning either, either just from the beginning of it, just saying, Hey, why don't we not issue the Wagner and tell everybody we have and make these kids keep buying until they don't have any money left? We're billionaires. Or we printed these Wagners. What are we going to do? What's he going to do? Sue us? Okay, fine. He sues us. So what? We'll just make you know a few of them, and people will try to get them because kids love Hannes Wagner. And and the the affection for Cobb and Wagner in terms of the public's understanding of who these guys would have been in 1909, I, I think. Maybe in LeBron James and Michael Jordan, maybe we've gotten halfway to the popularity of the most popular baseball players of 1909. Maybe, but I well, don't know. There I'm, was only one sport then. 
yeah, only one sport then. And um, it was it was viewed as a religion. And you you saw if there were 20,000 people at a ball game, 19,750 of them were keeping score. And and there were people who who, you know, consumed baseball before radio by standing around outside newspapers and waiting for the results to be written up on blackboards. And they would cheer when there was a base hit written up in the blackboard. Hundreds of people would stand outside newspapers in America in 1910 for the inning by inning results of the World Series. So to understand how popular they were and what, what if somebody had thought we could make more money by not including Wagner here or including him only in small quantities, it's, it's the temptation to do it and the reward for doing it would have easily outweighed anything they might have lost in a lawsuit. So, I, again, I don't have any evidence of it other than the two little drips in there and that interesting Charlotte story. But the timeline that we have always understood about the Wagner, oh, he he turned down their their request. Well, the card had, then the card has already been issued, but the card isn't known to be anywhere in March or April of 1909. It's it's we don't see it until the September advertisement. When exactly did all this happen, and why? And and it to me it allows for the possibility to make a long story interminable, the possibility that all that thing about the Wagner card is deliberate in some way. That's awesome. I I enjoyed that. I I had, I have, I have one question that I think you've kind of mooted, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. So why was Wagner special? Obviously he was the mega star, but why was he the only one that wanted money? Why were there not other major holdouts from yeah, I don't, the larger we don't, names. We don't know that. Why is the Eddie Plank card scarce? Eddie Plank is largely forgotten to baseball history, but he was he was the best, he was the most successful left-handed pitcher before Warren Spahn in baseball history. He was um, the centerpiece of the Philadelphia A's who were a you know juggernaut in the in the 10 years before these cards came out. And the story has always been that the Plank card um, the printing plate was broken, and yeah, that one that one doesn't hold up so well for but, me because the it was printed across two years. Well, in addition to the fact that you know there are what five different Hal Chase cards. If if the printing plate had broken in a Hal Chase card, they would have just made another different pose of Hal Chase. If if Plank, if there was some sort of technical issue with producing the Plank card, just make another one. There's no, with a different picture. I mean, one year Topps got a very bad print job on the second series of the 1962 baseball set, and they simply reprinted it. And for whatever reason, they had to change, or they just changed because they didn't want to be bothered trying to get copies of the original photographs. They changed the photographs on half a dozen cards and changed the croppings on the entire set of 98 cards. So, you know, why wouldn't, if the plank, was there was some sort of technical issue with it? Why didn't they just make a new one? So I don't <laughs> know that if, if Wagner actually held out for more money or whatever reason, I, I, the evidence would suggest so did Plank. And if you think of T206 in this order of T206, T205, and T207 as one, you know, annual set from American Tobacco with T206 covering 1909 and 1910. 
and T205 covering 1911 and T207 covering 1912. I noticed this when I was a kid. It's like, you notice that the number of stars in each of these sets drops off precipitously. You've got yeah. McGraw and you've got, you've got Matthewson and, and you've got, and they appear in, in T206 and T205. And then there's nobody in T207. There is like 65 of the 200 players in there are, are rookies who didn't even stick with their team after one month in 1912. The dogs are in strident opposition to this theory as you're here. But, um, the, you know, so, so I, I presumed that there was um, something that, that started these guys, you know, the, the star players, boycotting these these products altogether starting with t205 and one can assume it's much more likely particularly when ball players were you know considered outrageously overpaid if they were if they were making ten thousand dollars a year that the, that the thing was not aversion to tobacco but aversion to not getting paid enough money so that's my my theory is plank is whatever the the same reason the Wagner is scarce is the same reason the plank, the plank is scarce. And by the way, they are you, you can quibble as to how many planks there are and how many Wagners, but they're close. It's not like there's there's a thousand planks and a hundred Wagners. It's much closer than that. And there, well, I know lots of people who believe the plank is actually scarcer than the Wagner. So. Yeah, both are in like the seventy five ish. Somewhere, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think is I'm, I'm sort of thinking out loud either to add some credence to your theory as you move towards the 207s, the big stars in 207s are Walter Johnson and Tris Speaker, and they were both very juvenile, young in their career in 1911, 1912. They weren't mega stars yet. Yeah, and they may have, you know, they may have said, look, we want, you know, Pub. You, can't, you can't use my photo unless you give me $25. And Hans Wagner may have said, you can't use my photo unless you give me what I get from my Coca-Cola ads, which is a thousand dollars and the American tobacco company or whoever made these cards for them may have just said, Hey, we'll go without you. Don't worry about it. And these kids will buy anything as evidenced by the Charlotte observer article. So but I think, I think understanding what actually did or did not happen, or at least what could or could not have happened with Wagner is tied up in understanding how the, how those American tobacco sets go from everything that moved with a cut, you know, there are like 20 players in 1909 who are not in T206. So any, anything that moved by the time you get three years later into, into T207, it's, it's essentially some semi-stars and, and a bunch of guys named Rasmussen. And the most valuable card in that set uh, in T207 is a guy who never played a day in the major leagues, Irving Lewis of the Boston Braves, who sat on the bench for two months and then was sent down to the new England league. So there you go. It holds water to me. We'll see. We'll see if anybody comes up with any other brilliant theories, but I, I love it. You never know. It could be all, I mean, we didn't know about the, I don't, I don't know of anybody who knew about the Charlotte observer article before the, the wonderful invention of the newspaper archives and, and the searchable internet, you know, God knows what else is out there and we just haven't found it yet. Where are you collecting today? What what pull, what pulls your interest collecting today? Uh, let me see. It's it's the only drawback to um, to having most of the cards you ever ever put on a want list. Uh, but but, it, but there is a point at which you're not likely to find anything you need. 
and uh, and so my sets are probably. I, I try not to add new things to my collection, but let me just let me just look directly at the want list and, and give you. And I, I have, I'm missing, I guess, about four players. And of course, there are easily 20,000 different cards in there. You, don't, you can't go that way. But I've got 1,500 different cards in Old Judge, and I'm missing... Two guys, uh, three guys. So uh, there's that. I, I really, as they more and more of them have been discovered, there's a marvelous set of, of uh, scorecards from 1871 and 1872 called Mort Rogers, which are these photographs of National Association players like uh, Spalding and the Wright brothers and such. And uh, they're outstanding, but they're a little pricey. They're like $25,000 each. And even I find that a little daunting. But I've got uh, like about 20 of those. Um, the, uh, a lot of the 19th century stuff has become, I mean, it's just amazing. There, there, are, there was an entirely new 19th century set discovered in a, uh, in a house outside of, I think outside of Berkeley, California, about 11 to 12 years ago, a previously unknown set, two or three different players in it. And it had been sitting in a, in a window seat in this family that had owned the house since 1885 or something. And they were finally cleaning it out. And somebody said, what the hell's in here? Oh, look, baseball pictures. And it turned out to be an old judge, uh, gypsy queen, California league set that nobody had ever seen, uh, one card had ever been seen from it. Uh, I'm collecting Bregstone postcards, which are these wonderful St. Louis Browns and St. Louis Cardinals cards from 1909, Um Every once in a while, you know, something will turn up that, that will chip away at uh, uh, some of my needs and some of the obscure regionals of the, of the 50s and 60s. I, I need a couple of Cons hot dogs from the late 1950s, not the hot dogs, but the cards. And uh, uh, some of the tops test issues of the of the 60s, I can still use a couple of tops 1968 stand-ups. Um, still a couple short. I need Bill Russell and Len Wilkins from the 1968-69 Tops basketball test set. And let me see what else is on here. Uh, one thing I've really come to enjoy that I found recently, I also collect the Seattle popcorn cards. If you have any extra of those from the fifties or sixties, any about 15 of those over those sets. And you, you rather quickly realize that I come from a collection collecting era in which we just all assumed we were going to get everything that, okay, you got your, you got all the tops. Great. Okay. Now you can move on to the play ball cards of the forties and, Dowdies and then tobacco and there's 19th century stuff available over on this table and so that's the kind of collector I've been it's like I like that I'm just trying to complete that set so I started to collect z-nuts which are pacific coast league cards that run from 1911 to 1938 which another set you can never complete because a lot of the cards are are unique and most of them were destroyed in a game that, that kids could play with them 
And, uh, you know, every once in a while, I just sort of branch out and go, hey, these uh, Australian rules football cards from the 60s are really cool. So I have a couple of sets of those. You know, there's always something to, to collect. And, uh, and my, my active, as in today's collecting, has tailed off for new stuff with the exception. I like the job Tops does on the, uh, their 3D set every year where they take 100, 200 cards from, the, from the, the current regular brand Major League Baseball set and issue them in 3D. Um, I also I branched out over the years. I have a closet full of game-used baseballs. I just got one from the Don Larson Perfect Game, which is something I've been looking for for a while. So there's always something to, to go after. And, you know, always, uh, always looking for something new out of T206. You never know what's going to turn up because finally we have recognized that the that the miscuts and the color variations are fun if not necessarily different cards and to be fair a new t206 card has turned up as recently as when was it 2010 that the the, the other tinker tinker chicago on the chest rather than cubs turned up so there's still stuff to get there's still something out there that i don't own <laughs> And it's the quest. It's the quest, right? That's right. So you think, do you think that that card should be considered a variety in and of itself? Not, oh, yeah. As it's as valid as the Doyle, uh, New York national card. I mean, the, the, the difference between the two Doyles is, uh, three letters or four letters and an apostrophe. The cards are identical. And yet we, we accept that the Doyle is, and that was only discovered in like 19, 87 or 88, I think, or 1986, after Larry Fritch had spent his lifetime trying to find one. And he knew he knew it had to be there, and he was right. And uh, another collector and I had been looking for these Cubs variations probably off and on for the last 25 years. Because to circle back to the proofs, the the first really great card that I got out of T206 beyond what's regular, what's in the regular set was the proof of Schulte from the Cubs. And the issued card has him standing there with a, with a bat on his shoulder and it says Cubs on his uniform. And the proof card said Chicago on his uniform. And clearly they changed it because the team changed the uniforms in the winter of 1908, 1909 and went from Chicago to Cubs. And so uh, this other fellow and I, Art Martineau, he, he has been looking for these and we've been looking for these in all the, the first series T206 Cubs and never found one. And then suddenly two or three of these popped up in a bunch of auctions about 10 years ago. And it's, it's clear that it says Chicago and it's been partially erased and Cubs has been printed on top of it. So it says essentially reads Chicago Cubs. And the Tinker was the one we'd always looked at and said, that's the most likely one because there's always been like debris. It looks like somebody rubbed that off like the, like the Ripken F face Fleer card from 1989, like various emergency corrections, like stop the presses. And somebody went over and scratched something off. Well, that's, if you look at, if you get a bunch of these Tinker hands on knees cards together, you will see that, they don't no two of them match up exactly. And clearly they, they inadvertently printed a card that read both Chicago and Cubs and corrected it 
very quickly, very amateurishly, and then improved it with each print run. And I don't know, there might be 20 or 30 different ones. And I think considering them all as variations is probably absurd, but certainly one in which you can see the word Chicago is a different card than the one where you cannot see the word Chicago. We accept that in every other series that has ever been made. I don't see why it wouldn't be the case in this. So then where do you stand on Nodgrass and Mar apostrophe Y and, and those guys? Uh, those are, those are probably printer errors. My dividing line, and, and I wrote an error and variation column as long ago as 1974 for the trader speaks, even though I really didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, though the, the, the dividing line is essentially intent. If you, if you go in and your, your printer doesn't, your printing device, your, your lithograph in this case, missed strikes and leaves the S off Snodgrass, the first S off Snodgrass, that to me is debatable. Uh, when it's a misspelling or you have erased a vestigial team name that is inaccurate like Doyle, or McGee, M-A-G-I-E, instead of M-A-G-E-E, -E, those are clearly, you know, th those are not just mechanical errors. Those are human changes. So intent, there's no question it's, um, it's a variation. I'm on the border with, with Nodgrass because I don't think somebody said, oh, his name is Nodgrass. Let's make a Nodgrass card. And certainly the Murray thing, it looks like a, like a, a flaw with, uh, with, a, with a printing process, uh, an impression as, they, as the printers say. But you know, on the other hand, if you think those aren't real cards, again, I'll, I'll circle back to, to uh, Eddie Plank. The, the story is that that card's scarce because something broke. Well, the Nodgrass is, is scarce because something broke too. So that probably is, it's probably legit. And that, one of the joys of this is uh, you can include whatever you want in it. You can say, well, all right. I mean, particularly if you're in my position, you say, you really want a complete set of T206? You have to have the proofs. To yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's only one of each. Yes, you got That's, that's a 534 card set. <laughs> oh, no. And then, by the way, I also, you know, there's a, there are a couple of things that are clearly printing screw-ups. Like I have a card of Nick Maddox of the Pirates where there's no name on it at all. There's just no name and it hasn't been scratched off and it hasn't been, it's not a miscut. It's just, I've seen a, I've seen a not, couple of those. it's not there. And I've never seen another one with Maddox, but you can see them periodically. It's not a proof. It's got a full back. And I mean, I don't know what that is. I do know that, that about a couple of years ago, I bought in an auction at what I thought was a very good price, something like 200 color variations and miscut cards and such. And I think, they're fun too. And, you know, if you want to sit there and go, well, I'm, I'm trying to complete T206 with every known color variation, you might be talking about a 1500 card set. So it's, it's all in the eyes of the beholder. We, you know, we credit anybody who gets everything, but uh, McGee, Plank and Wagner is essentially credited with a complete set. And I always thought that was going to include me until I came into a little money and, uh, and was able to get the Wagner. So, you know, again, it's, uh, it, it's like what people say, what's the, what's the 2020 baseball season mean? Or whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> okay. We, we're the ones who decide that. It's that it doesn't, doesn't get announced in the sky in gold letters. 
And it's like, the Doyle card is not a legitimate teacher of six. It's not going to appear in the sky in every known language, you know, tonight at midnight, local time. I and mean, that's just not the way it works. We make those decisions. And the, as near as I know, there's no governing board of T206, although I'd like to see one. It's not going to happen. And there are no official rulings and there's no official card collectors society in this country as there is, say, in, in England. Um, so there, you, you just make it up as you go along. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's one of the things we've mentioned possibly on every single episode but of the podcast so far, but certainly on most of them, that that's kind of the beauty of the set. Mm -hmm. You can collect it however you want and you can change mid course and take a different direction and change your focus. And yeah, there's no one, there's no right or wrong way to do it. That's, I mean, that's cards in general, because I I remember this clear as a bell, a guy walks up and asks me at a card show, maybe 1974 for a 1968 Tops Brooks Robinson. And I happened to have one and I sold it to him for some outrageous price because he asked for it by name rather than for card number. And we frowned on that. You're supposed to try to collect the entire set. Why, why would you want just one card? But I assumed, you know, it's just he's, he's, that's the, that's the card he hasn't been able to find. I was like, well, okay, here's one. And that'll be a dollar. And he, and, and he, he held it, he held it in his hand like it was the key to eternal life. And he said, my collection is complete. My collection, I said, oh, you completed 68 tops. Congratulations. He goes, no, no, no. I just collect Brooks Robinson cards. And there were like six dealers who heard this conversation, including me. And we all burst into laughter. Like, uh, so your collection is 22 cards. Is that right? <laughs> and he was like, this guy was like offended that we had laughed, but it was such a silly idea. You only collect Brooks Robinson cards. Is that right? Wow. How long have you been at it? Since nine or 10 this morning? I mean, it was just, and now, you know, there are, there are people who I would say probably a majority of people who collect baseball cards, T206 and whatever else who are, our PCs, our player correct collectors, right? I mean, that's yeah. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a player collector. Yeah. Who's that? Which player is that? Is it? I, is it, I collect uh, Walter Johnson and Ty Cobb. All right, with, very good. Back, with backs. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, the 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 point being that we have accepted gradually the idea that you can collect however you want to, and with a set that offers. You know, as I mean, you could you could be a collector just of sunsets in T206. Yeah. You know, it's like whatever, just backup catchers, whatever you want. Um, just the idea that, that something that was produced for what, as we referred to earlier, clearly is a, a, the most crass of commercial processes. Let's sell cigarettes to minors. <laughs> um, let's hook them for life and then be there at their funerals. The, the, these things can, be, can turn out to be objects of, you know, genuine art. As I, you know, I could see myself saying this to my dad at the lunch counter of the uh, Center Restaurant Hastings on Hudson, New York in 1970. And it's like, these are really beautiful, aren't they? And he was like, well, yeah, yeah, I guess they are. And you know, they are, they're very well done. And he was an architect and had an appreciation for design. But he was like, no, no. Yeah, I guess so. I said, well, they got to be worth more than 55 cents. They're almost art. And there you go. 
So it's nice the idea that whatever ways people can find to enjoy this, they, they have found to enjoy. What do you make of the crazy vintage market during COVID time? Well, uh, I managed to cash in enough so that I don't have to work again in this lifetime unless I live past 125. Uh, this actually started shortly before uh, the pandemic. Um, I was approached about, it was about the, the uh, Cap Anson in uniform card from Old Judge, of which there's, I think, only four or five known. And some people have referred to it as the Hannes Wagner of the 19th century, which is fine, but you got to include the fact that Cap Anson was a virulent racist who uh, contributed to the segregation of Major League Baseball between 1884 and 1947. And it's, it's not the only card of him in the set. And it's not really, you know, if you, if you want to say I have a complete, complete set of these cards, you don't have to have that posed. You can get the most, much more common one of Cap Anson in, uh, in street clothes in a, in a formal suit and tie. Um, and somebody approached me and said they wanted to buy this card and they offered, uh, I'd say, two and a half times what I had it insured for. And I kind of rolled the dice a little bit and tried to jack the price up on him a little bit and, and sold it for about four times what I had it insured for and uh, was really kind of like, well, I got rid of a card of a racist. Oh, cool. And that was, I would say that was fall of 2019. So something happened where people decided to spend whatever it took to get high-end cards. And I managed to, I sold one of the Babe Ruth uh, Baltimore news cards for uh, uh, four times what I thought it was worth. And it was kind of beaten up and missing half of its back. And the guy didn't care. I was like, okay, love babe. I love the set. It's a great set of cards. And once again, now I'm covered through age 140. So why should I hold on to this? Oh, by the way, there's a pandemic. Who knows what's going to, what things are going to look like on the other side. And then the last one was, and I don't, I haven't revealed this before previously, same thing with the Collins proof. I sold the Collins proof last year um, and was kind of pleased with the tenfold profit considering I only bought it 15 or 16 years ago. And once again, somebody walked in and they had a lot of money and like, what should I buy? And, and somebody said, well, one of a kind card from T206. And the offer was again, like multiples of what, what the leading assessors in the hobby had the card pegged at. So uh, I, I'm a little jaundiced and, and a little um, a little prejudiced in terms of this issue because I look at it and go, well, hey, guess what? There is a price at which I will sell <laughs> these unique cards that I have looked for for my entire... That Collins is really ugly, especially if somebody's offering you several times what it's worth to sell it to them. So. Were these offers coming from people in the hobby or new entrants? Uh, I one of them I sold three cards. One of them was was a was to a collector. I think the other two were were to uh, to newcomers. But I didn't like it's one again. It's really just one of those things where you go. What are the tax implications here? I mean, this is not. I'm not so divorced from the times when I used to make uh, sixteen thousand a year as a radio sportscaster in New York to to really look at this and go. Well, I'll need to see. The, uh, I need to do a home inspection to make sure that the Eddie Collins proof <laughs> proper conditions. Like, 
Now, when are you going to give me the money? Okay, here's the card. And Lifson will pick it up. Okay, great. Goodbye. And that's the whole thing. I mean, you just, it's the, uh, the there's, a, there's a great scene in the uh, Warren Beatty picture where he comes back from the dead and he's the quarterback of the Rams, which they wish really would happen in, in real life. But it's uh, Heaven Can Wait. And he's this multimillionaire or, he, or he's the quarterback of the Rams and gets, gets really injured and the angels come for him, only he's not supposed to be dead yet. So now they've killed him and they got to put him back in another body. So they put him in the, back, in the body of a billionaire. And when he realizes who he is, he buys the Rams. And there's this great scene in which the former owner of the Rams is looking at practice now that he doesn't own the team anymore. And he's just crying. And the other guy goes, how do they arrest the team from you, Milt? And Milt says, he asked me what I wanted for the franchise. And I said, $67 million. And he said, okay. And <laughs> the bastard. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, how much do you want for that, Eddie Collins? Um, this much money? And the other guy goes, okay. And you go, well, I'm selling it. Yeah, I hear you. I just, it's interesting because there's, there's been a lot of really crazy stuff happening and I, you know, I, I'm always but, but, but look, in, I mean, in, I'll go back to Mastro. I, I, I expect that, you know, I don't know how much, you know, I'm 62 years old. I, I, I look to the future in five minute increments at this point, but I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I may live long enough to regret making those sales because they'll be much more valuable in the future. I mean, that's, that's the lesson of the Mastro thing. And Mike Aronstein's forecasts for the hobby from the late 70s. I mean, he said, he said what he said. He said he expected to live long enough to see the card for a million dollars. And now I'm now thinking we're at a stage where the worst conditioned Wagners, based on the, the Joe Garagiola sale, are going to come in in the high six figures. And maybe the worst conditioned Wagners are worth a million. So you know, you just, you, there will be a day that I think there will be a day where somebody, maybe one of my descendants will go, he sold that Collins for how much? Could have gotten 27 million for it now. And who's to say that's not the case. There are people who are buying, spending huge amounts of money for art that only exists inside a computer. And it's like, um, uh, somebody who's had their email hacked by the Russian government. I wonder how safe it is to spend money on something that exists only inside a computer. You're, like, wonder, that, you're like that Eddie Collins might be ugly, but he, he exists in real life. That's right. There's one of him and, <laughs> and maybe, you know, God help us. Maybe the, another one will turn up someday because it's unlikely. Even most proof cards, most things are proofed four or five times as a, at a minimum. And we know like the other famous proof cards, in history in 1967 tops Roger Maris, there are at least a hundred of those. So maybe there's another Collins hiding somewhere, but I don't think if it appears, it's suddenly going to turn this, you know, six figure card into, well, they're now really cheap. There's now down to $700,000 each. I mean, certain, no, certain, certainly not. I think, you know, in, 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 but the absurdity to the, the rest of the, of the card market is, would you really spend that kind of money on something that was produced with a deliberate intent and acknowledgement that it was going to be scarce? And it's like a one of a card kind card of, you know, any current player. 
In other words, the case, the book is books are closed on Ty Cobb. We're, we're not going to learn anything terrible about him. But what if this craze of, you know, really great expensive cards of active players had happened when OJ Simpson was still playing? I mean, do you really think that the OJ, uh, the OJ Simpson equivalent of a LeBron James double secret refractor selling for several million dollars because it was once breathed on by Mike Trout? I mean, do you, do you think an OJ Simpson, one of those would have held value? Like, yeah, um, I'll give you $35 for it. Okay, fine, but uh, make it in cash. So. I have a one-of-one one OJ autographed yarmulke that I got at a bar mitzvah in Long Island uh, in 1993. Well, there's only one word for that now, and it's appropriate, and that word is oi. So there you have it. The history of sports from Hannes Wagner to autograph yarmulkes. There That's right. Full <laughs> spectrum podcast that you've got going here. Congratulations. Thank you for your time, Keith. This was amazing. Justin, thank you. Jay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll, we'll reconvene when we find something else out about, uh, about these bloody little cards. All righty. Take care. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Keith. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Monster Podcast. Don't forget to check us out online at monsterpodcast.com and on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you next time.